0: everybody um, well are we good back there text the we're good okay we'll, we'll get started on our part 2 again with our first one going a little fast maybe we'll get out just a, a little bit early but we'll see see how it goes so we're going to continue on with our um, male reproductive part 2 so again I, I've got a clicker coming up here shortly so you can get your clickers uh, Ready. Here's some of your objectives for this one. Um, Again, if you've got any questions on any of these things later. But hopefully these objectives are also kind of a nice way to review and and really kind of prep for for those labs coming up. Um, Maybe just take a minute to remind you guys um, you can be really efficient with this part of the course. As you guys, I think a lot of you know now that if you preview this material, review this material, and then prep for that lab really hard, um, that's, you can really kind of, of course, you have to come back and review before the exam, but you can be really efficient with that time. So I encourage you to, if you maybe forgot that over the summer, to kind of get back in that routine. It really can make the rest of the course you know, material this term. If you can kind of be efficient with histo, it gives you more time for some of the other stuff that you guys need to focus on. Oh, sorry, the white arrow, but, or it's the whole thing. So it's the whole structure, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't wanna touch it, I'll probably mess it up. So it's, what is this? What are we looking at? What's this whole big thing on this slide? Still don't feel any AC yet. You guys feel? Uh, was it on this morning earlier too? No. Oh, okay. All right, so we'll, we'll be coming, coming back to this one at the end. Hello, okay. Good, so hopefully those numbers will change a little bit as we go forward, okay. So so we looked at the testis, the structures of the testis, tunic vaginalis, tunic albiginia, the septa, the lobules, seminiferous tubules, seminiferous epithelium, spermatogonia to spermatozoa, your Leydig cells. Now we're gonna be looking at the duct, right? We still have to get these spermatozoa out of the body and if you're lucky enough or fortunate enough to, again, we need to deliver them at at a certain point in the right spot at the right time if we wanna have fertilization occurring. So we still have to get these things out of your testes into the female reproductive tract or, or what have you, into a cup or whatever else you happen to be doing with it, right? <laughs> so, when we think of these ducts, we think of intratesticular ducts and extratesticular ducts. They're, developmentally, they're different. Your extratesticular ducts are, um, as you, when you study these, you'll see they're coming from your mesonephric Um, ducts during development, remember those from your development of your kidneys, for example, right? Development of the kidneys and reproductive systems are closely linked and we utilize some of the ducts in men and some of the ducts in women. Anyway, um, the extratesticular ducts are developing from those mesonephric ducts, Wolfian ducts. Intratesticular ducts are not part of that. So, intratesticular ducts that we're gonna see We saw the seminiferous tubules. We're going to be looking at the straight tubules or tubula recti, leading to this kind of anastomocene area, which is the reedy testes. These are the intratesticular part. Starting with the efferent ductules, these little short connecting ones to your epididymis and all these other purple ones are going to be your extratesticular ducts. Again, slightly different developmental um, origin. So we want to be able to identify each of these. What are the cells in there? What's their structure? What's their function? As we go forward, and again, you can kind of use this for review. It's relatively simple. Most of these ducts are pseudostratified columnar epithelium. As we'll see, this is one of those spots in the body where we actually see stereocilia, along with like your inner ear and that sort of thing one of the few places we actually see stereocilia. So that's kind of a, a highlight of uh, these ducts. Okay, so starting with our tubular recta, your straight tubules. These are the ones that are connecting. They're really short, as we saw. They're just these, the terminal end of your seminiferous tubule leading into your reedy testis. So it's just these very short ter- terminal ends. Right? as they're coming, coming into this rete testis, So just the very end of, of the seminiferous tubule, and they tend to be lined only by Sertoli cells, and then as they get closer, to more of just a cuboidal epithelium, as they empty into the mediastinum testes, or the reedy testi area. So here's a look at some of this. So, Here's a lower mag as this tubule is coming into this anastomosing Reedy testis, We zoom in on that. This is that end of the seminiferous tubule. We can see lots of those different cell types present there. But as we go through this straight part, those start to disappear, and we'll only see some of your Sertoli cells in there. And then it just progresses to more of a cuboidal epithelium as it works its way to the Reedy testy. So it's just a really short, straight part that connects the seminiferous tubule to the Reedy testis, And the Reedy testis again, is all kind of this anastomosing area. After the Reedy testis, now we're going from intratesticular ducts to extratesticular, starting with these little connecting ones that are connecting that mediastinum testes and Reedy testis to this next structure, which is your epididymis. Now, efferent ductules, again, this is kind of a classic appearance. They kind of look like kind of a jagged or serrated edge to the epithelium, where you kind of get highs and lows. It's kind of a characteristic feature of this efferent ductules. Again, these are pseudostratified, so some of these cells are really tall, and some of them are really short and basal cells which gives it kind of this kind of scalloped or serrated kind of appearance. So that's one way to be really confident that you are looking at your efferent ductules versus seminiferous epithelium or epididymis and that sort of thing. And again, they are also surrounded by some smooth muscle. So again, some of that contraction, just like with that peritubular material around the seminiferous tubules, For most of these structures, there's gonna be some muscle or contractile cells to help push and um, move the spermatozoa and fluid through these tubules. So efferent ductules just connects the Reedy testes to the epididymis. And this is our next one, the epididymis. It is um, really long highly coiled tube, it's a single tube. Evidently, if they stretch it out, I always wonder how they measure these things. But they estimated this epididymis is maybe five meters in length, right? just really highly coiled. It's a single tube, though, so it shares a common lumen. It's got three parts, it's got the head, which is where your efferent ductules are emptying into. It's got the body, and then it has the tail, all right? And the function of this epididymis, it's the spermatozoa are gonna continue their maturation process within this epididymis, and they will stay, they'll be stored there for again, approximately 12 days. So if you combine the 74 days it takes to produce uh, your spermatozoa, add another 12 days of storage and maturation in your epididymis, that puts us up to 86 days, give or take, right? So we're look again, looking at that three-month window from start to finish, right? So that's a three-month gap from again any toxins or other insults that can disrupt this process. So again, so the function of the epididymis is usually considered storage, and continued maturation of these spermatozoa. And if you look at these in profile, so if we do a section through this. We'll catch them at, again, this big tube at different profiles, right? Again, it is lined by that relatively um, distinct pseudostratified epithelium with stereocilia. And another function or role of this epididymis is to play a role in what they call decapacitation. So um, it's thought that It's a reversible process, and they're not entirely clear what molecules or substances are doing this, but decapacitation um, is going to reversibly inhibit the sperm from fertilizing oocytes. So while they're maturing, they are decapacitated. They won't be capacitated until they enter the female reproductive tract, okay? So capacitation occurs in the female reproductive tract when they're released into the vaginal canal, and then they can then start swimming and becoming motile, and working their way through the cervical canal and up through the uterus and into the uterine tubes. So capacitation doesn't occur until later. So when we think of epididymis, we're thinking of decapacitation, storage, and maturation. So if we zoom in on that a little bit, now we can see one of these, one part of that tube and profile. So it's, here's our epithelium. It's attached to your basal lamina. Surrounding that, we can see some smooth muscle surrounding that tube. And this is that pseudo-stratified epithelium. So we have got really tall columnar cells. You can even start to see at the black arrows some of these long stereocilia. Remember, microvilli are really short few microns in length, um, structures filled with actin filaments, stereocilia, again, are much longer, again, even 100 microns in length filled with actin microfilaments. So they're not motile, but again, they, they help with increasing surface area for absorption and secretion and that sort of thing. So when we think of epididymis, we're thinking pseudostratified epithelium with stereocilia. What do you guys think all of this is? This is somatozoa that's being stored and, and is maturing and being decapacitated within the lumen of your epididymis. So here's a TEM look at your epididymis. Your PC are your, your principal cells, your tall columnar cells. Your basal cells are of course your your stem cells within that epithelium. And at the surface, so here's your lumen, we can see a little bit of a spermatozoa, which is S in the lumen. And these long structures are your stereocilia. And again, those are filled with your actin, bundled actin filaments. And this one, we're catching a piece of that spermatozoa. You can see these structures, which are wrapped around the middle piece of your spermatozoa. These are mitochondria right, within that cell. Okay, so after we work our way, after 12 days of maturation and decapacitation, from the tail onward, now this becomes uh, known as the ductus deferens, or sometimes called your vas deferens. Okay? This is the structure. Anybody want to, um, anybody had a vasectomy before? Anybody want to raise their hand and <laughs> nobody? Okay, <laughs> got some people. So this is the structure that is targeted during a vasectomy, right? One of the few ways um, we can regulate kind of a male birth control type of procedure, right? If we clip this and tie this fast deferens off or ductus deferens off, now those spermatozoa are not gonna continue forward, right? So again, can prevent pregnancies and fertilization. So again, um, you can see this in, in the gross anatomy lab too within your, remember that spermatic cord? Or you will come to the spermatic cord. It's a really muscular tube, as we'll see shortly, well even on this slide, you can see it's surrounded by layers of muscle. It's got an inner longitudinal layer. Here's the lumen of the tube, lined by epithelium. Here's the inner layer, inner longitudinal, so it's coming out with the plane at us. We've got circular layer, and then a third layer, longitudinal. So it also kind of has a distinct appearance when you look at it, almost like a little bullseye, eye right? um, So again, really muscular tube, you can actually see this, and. Feel it within the spermatic cord when you're in the gross anatomy lab. You will, you'll see all these other veins and you'll see a really thick muscular tube. That's your vas or ductus deferens. And it's also lined by your pseudostratified epithelium. It does have some folds in it. So here's another look if we zoom in on that. Here's our lumen. Here's our epithelium. Here's the basal membrane. Here's our longitudinal, circular, longitudinal three layers. We zoom in on this area. Here we can get a better look at that epithelium. Again, pseudostratified with stereocilia, columnar cells with some basal cells present in there. So this ductus deferens ascends up from the scrotum up through your spermatic cord, goes, enter, goes through the inguinal canal, superficial opening, deep ring, arches over the bladder and comes in posteriorly, um, as we'll see close to these glands, which are your seminal vesicles. So this thing arching over, looping over, this is your ureter, this is our bladder right here. So this is a posterior view Here's your pubic bone. Your pubic symphysis would be right on this other side. So the bladder is immediately behind your pubic symphysis for the most part. Um, And these are looping up. So in the cadaver, you would see this exiting the deep inguinal ring and looping over the bladder and coming posteriorly. It will meet up with the ducts of your seminal vesicle glands. So as we go forward, we're gonna look at your Seminal vesicles, your prostate gland, and your bulbo-urethral gland. This first one is your seminal vesicle. It's these paired glands on the posterior side of the bladder, and it's meeting up with your um, ductus deferens. And when they come together at this, when the ampulla meets up with your seminal vesicle, these are now called your ejaculatory duct. They're gonna release that spermatozoa along with some seminal fluid, seminal vesicle fluid, into your prostatic urethra. And then from the prostatic urethra, through the membranous, into your spongy urethra. And then out through your external urethral orifice. All right? So seminal vesicles, pretty important, they produce at least most of the volume of your semen, the, the fluid part of your, your ejaculate about 60 to 70% of it. And it's unique, one of the characteristic features of it, is it's really high in fructose, as I again, thought to be kind of an energy source for these living spermatozoa. So um, overall, it's kind of a, a whitish, yellowish, viscous liquid. So let's look at that seminal vesicle in a little more detail. So if we do a section through that seminal vesicle, it's a gland, right? So it's going to look like glandular epithelium. So this is kind of the lumen part, and it's lined by epithelium. Now, this is more or less a, a continuous open space, but because of all the folds in the epithelium, it looks like there's separate little pockets in there, but it's, they're just numerous folds of the tissue, right? The arrows are pointing at some of these... Folds, But this is a gland, and it's basically one lumen, and that gland is lined by glandular epithelium. And on the outside, we're gonna have connective tissue, and then some more smooth muscle, and then ultimately have a connective tissue covering. So if we zoom in on that glandular part, epithelial part, a little bit, here we can still see some of these numerous folds. Here's the lumen. Again, this is gonna be lined by the epithelium. If we would zoom in on some of this area, it's gonna look like this, right? So again, kinda keep it simple. This epithelium is described, for the most part, as a pseudo-stratified epithelium. It's been basically pseudo-stratified all the way through. Um, And this is no different. Again, this is glandular, so sometimes there can be changes in shape and appearance, but for the most part, this is a pseudo-stratified epithelium, so you'll have taller cells, columnar cells, with some shorter cells and basal cells. All right, so moving on to our next gland. This is our prostate gland, and unique to, just like seminal vesicles, unique to the male reproductive system Unfortunately, it's also some tissue that tends to um, have some disease or pathological conditions in men if you are fortunate to live long enough, right? So almost any of us males, if we happen to live into our 70s and our 80s, a really good chance we're gonna have some prostate issues, right? Some hyperplasia, probably almost guaranteed, maybe some prostatic cancer, right? Um, so. It's important to have a good idea about some of the histology of this prostate as it relates um, to some of those clinical scenarios. So it also produces a number of substances that are gonna be, it's a gland, so they're gonna be secreted and released into the prostatic urethra via different ducts. Some of these are, again, involved in Um, Supporting the spermatozoa, things like citric acid. Some things are, um, again, like your PSA or your PAP, your prostatic-specific antigen. as a protease, but it's often used as one of the biomarkers for prostate issues, things like prostate cancer and that sort of thing. They'll look at levels, like PSA levels, as one, not usually the only indicator, but one of the... Um, biomarkers of again um, prostate issues or prostate cancer. The other one is prostatic acid phosphatase. This is also usually used in conjunction with your PSA as um, an indication of prostatic health or if there are other issues with, with your prostate. And there are some other substances that again are functioning to assist with or support that um, semen and allow it to be um, released from the body. So if seminal vesicles are producing about 60 to 70% of the fluid of semen, uh, your prostate is gonna contribute, estimated about 25%, which is largely made up of your, your citric acid, PSA and PAP. Now, they divide this gland into a number of different zones. And sometimes there are differences between how gross anatomists talk about it and histologists talk about it. But for our purposes, this whole kind of normal size, they say kind of about a golf ball size or walnut size, right? But if it's enlarged or hyperplasia, it can get to tennis ball size or orange size or grapefruit size if it gets bigger but this gland is surrounding urethra so as we'll see later if there are if there is hyperplasia if there is cancer it can often compress on this tube and can uh, so some of the first signs of enlargement are going to be difficulty urinating or starting and stopping or urging to go and Stopping at every rest stop when you're with your grandfather, right? Every five, to every 10 minutes, it's like, all right, I gotta go again. Okay, we'll pull off, right? So as these get hyperplasia and growth occurring, they can affect urination. They can also affect um, ejaculation and sexual um, performance and, and that sort of thing. So a few zones, again, this is a gland, so there's lots of different um, areas where we're gonna see glandular epithelium. One thing that's, uh, a distinct feature of the prostate is these things called prostatic concretions. So as we'll look at the next slide, you'll see kind of these, these large concretions which are characteristic of the prostate. Um, this glandular epithelium is requires testosterone. Um, it actually has enzymes that will convert testosterone um, to dihydrotestosterone, which is again a really powerful um, version of testosterone and it can also kind of help drive some of these pathological conditions. Because it stimulates the growth of this epithelium. So it can be involved in, again, hyperplasia and et cetera. So what are some of these zones? So we got the, the central zone, which is gonna be surrounding the ejaculatory duct, right? So here's your vas deferens, here's your seminal vesicle, where those things come together and pass through the prostate these are ejaculatory ducts. So we've got two of those that are emptying into the prostatic urethra. And the t- glandular tissue surrounding those is what they call the central zone. Now, the peripheral zone is going to be most of this area that's surrounding that central zone and tends to be most of the, the kind of lateral and posterior side of the prostate. Now this is where a lot or a relatively large percentage of prostatic cancers develop. Now if you think anatomically, this is posteriorly, this is anteriorly, your rectum in males, the rectum is right back here, right? So the purpose of that digital rectal exam is you can digitally palpate that peripheral zone of your prostate, and if you feel any nodules or enlargements, um, you, again, can be another indication of uh, maybe some prostatic cancer, or if it feels enlarged, um, hyperplasia. So you can actually palpate that part of the prostate. Okay, so we've got the periurethral zone, which, as the name suggests, is just surrounding the uh, urethra, and then the transition zone, which is surrounding that part of the urethra. And this is the part, this transition zone, tends to be involved with BPH, or the benign prostatic hyperplasia. So we'll get proliferation of that stroma and epithelium in this transition zone, and what do you think is gonna happen? It's gonna constrict and squeeze on that prostatic urethra, which can affect um, urination and, and some of these other other symptoms. So here's a section through that prostate where you can kind of see some of these other zones. So these two openings, those are those two ejaculatory ducts working their way, eventually are going to empty into your urethra. So this part surrounding the urethra and the central zone is your transitional zone. That's the one we were just talking about as it relates to BPH. Your central zone is surrounding your ejaculatory ducts. This is your peripheral zone, which again tends to be more that lateral, posterior part of the prostate. And again, that's the one that generally you can sometimes palpate if there are any uh, growths or lesions or nodules present on that prostate. Okay, so here's another higher MEG looking at that glandular epithelium. And in both these images, we can see, even without too much, even if the C's weren't on there, hopefully, we would recognize these as concretions. Again, kind of a distinctive feature of the prostate gland. Don't tend to see that in seminal vesicles, so hopefully that can be one of your little bullet points when you uh, uh, try to differentiate prostate versus (coughs) seminal vesicle. So this is a gland, right? So this is the lumen, it's lined by epithelium. Surrounding that is your fibromuscular stroma. It's got both connective tissue and smooth muscle in that stroma. It also responds to testosterone and dihydrotestosterone, so it can proliferate and expand as um, under hormonal, or hormonal stimulation. So if we zoom in on one of these, it's gonna look something like this, right? So we can see the glandular epithelium. Sorry, a little tickle there. We can see the glandular epithelium, and if we zoom in on that, again, it can vary. It tends to be again close to uh, pseudo-stratified epithelium. Sometimes it might just be, look more columnar, etc. Depends on where you cut it and how you cut it. This in between is your smooth muscle and your connective tissue. This is your stroma. So this is with your Mallory stain, so we can really differentiate the connective tissue, which is kind of, (coughs) excuse me, more of a blue, and the red, which is your smooth muscle. This is all the stroma and we can see this is um, our epithelial portions. And in this case, our concretions are jumping out and they're staining blue. So if we zoom in on that, we can also see, here's our epithelium, and a little better look at that type of epithelium, which is our pseudo-stratified epithelium. All right, so benign prostatic Hyperplasia, BPH. Sometimes um, they use other names for it, but we should be thinking this is hyperplasia. Sometimes they call it benign prostatic hypertrophy because the whole gland gets bigger. But technically, we want, should be technical, it's due, the, the cells are proliferating, so it's hyperplasia, right, so the cells are just increasing in number, they're not getting, the cells aren't getting bigger, the cells are increasing in number. So we should be calling it benign prostatic hyperplasia. The gland itself might be getting bigger, but the process involved is cell proliferation, It's hyperplasia. And it's the glandular stuff for the most part, responding again often to that testosterone and other um, dihydrotestosterone, it's gonna cause proliferation of that glandular epithelium. and also can impact stroma, so you can increase the stroma and epithelium. What will happen is you'll get these um, different growths or nodules forming. This part right in the middle here is your urethra, right? And this is that, again, that transition zone around there, which as this hyperplasia occurs, it's gonna compress on that prostatic urethra. So again, this, this is the peripheral zone on this other side, but most of this is occurring in that transition zone. And again, some of the, the classic symptoms, kind of weak urination, um, kind of a weak flow, um, difficulty starting, stopping. Sometimes elderly people, you'll stand at the urinal and, Kind of wait a little while right, for things to kind of get flowing, right, because it's hard to start and stop. Um, And sometimes it doesn't completely empty, right, so you kind of have some feeling that you need to urinate, even though you might have just went a couple minutes ago. And again, this can cause an enlargement of the entire prostate. And if we are, for the men out there, lucky enough to live long enough, it's probably gonna happen to us. Right? If we live long enough, chances are we're going to have to get ready to deal deal with this. Okay, so the, the next one is our bubble urethral glands. And these are kind of tough to see, even in the cadaver, because they tend to be in this membranous part, right? That remember that, where that perineal membrane is, as you guys review that. Whereas the urethra passes through it, that's that part they call it the membranous urethra. So it's kind of below or inferior to the prostate um, and that close to that perineal membrane. And they're relatively small, and they're gonna empty their mucus secretions into that urethra, into that um, um, part of the urethra. Um, And this is also right where that transition occurs. So we've got the prostatic urethra, the membranous urethra, and as it pierces the bulb of the penis, now it's called the spongy urethra. So these ducts are actually opening into the spongy part of the urethra. And again, these are more of a mucus-like secretion. um, Helps to kind of lubricate this spongy urethra, get it ready for the ejaculate, sometimes called pre fluid. So if we look, looked at a section through these, they secrete mucus, so we would expect them to look like mucus glands, and they do. These are all your bulbourethral urethra glands, and again, with your mucus secreting cells, via their ducts into that spongy part of the epithelium. All right, so we'll kind of finish things up by looking at um, the penis, the histology of the penis. Um, But it helps, and we'll come back to this a little bit, helps to kind of be familiar with some of the the gross anatomy of this structure, and you will review it and more a little bit later. But of course all the skin and fat and adipose tissue and connective tissue's been removed, but the penis is made up of two dorsal erectile tissues which we'll see up here which is your corpora cavernosum and one ventral erectile tissue which is your corpus spongiosum. But they, are, they start by they're attached to this perineal membrane. This is what they call the root of the penis. All right? This is the bulb of the penis this is the, re- the right and left crust, or arm or leg. So as they come up This is the perineal membrane. Here's your pubic symphysis. As they come together at the midline, they are now not attached, right? So they'll form the body of the penis. And we'll look at that in a little more detail. But so what we're gonna be looking at, we're gonna do a section through the penis, and we're gonna be able to see these two dorsal erectile bodies and this one ventral erectile body on the next slide. So here's the section through the penis. Um, these are dorsal. The anatomical position for the penis is an erect position, not in a downward position. So that's why those, these two on the top are dorsal. This is ventral. and anatomical position is erect. So we have two dorsal erectile bodies. These are the corpora cavernosa. We have a single ventral erectile body, which is the corpus. Spongiosum. Within that corpus spongiosum is your spongy urethra. So this is erectile tissue. We'll look at it in more detail later. But this erectile tissue, again, um, homologous structures in the female. You'll have the bulbs of the vestibule, which are the equivalent of the bulb of the penis in men. And then you'll have your right and left crust of the clitoris, which is homologous to the right and left crust of the penis. So women also have erectile tissue. Um, Men need it, obviously, to achieve, uh, achieve an erection, right? So erectile tissue means it can become erect. It's gonna become engorged with blood. So as we look at this, we'll look at some of the structures of the erectile tissue to see how that can happen. So just to get us oriented, skin, there's some superficial fascia. There are structures you're gonna look at in anatomy called your deep fascia or Bucks fascia. As we work our way down, here's your dorsal uh, vein and your dorsal arteries, the penis. Your rectile tissue is also covered by a connective tissue covering, also called the tunica albuginia. It's a white, dense, irregular connective tissue that surrounds the erectile bodies. Right? So this dense connective tissue covering is the tunica albuginia. And you can see it also kind of can do a little septa. But these structures are the erectile bodies, corpus cavernosum and corpus spongiosum. So here's a, a zoom in on the corpus spongiosum. Here's your spongy urethra lining it. And surrounding it is this erectile tissue. So if we would zoom in on one of these areas, it's going to look like this, all right? These irregular spaces are the vascular spaces. Those are the, the parts that are going to become filled with blood, and allowing um, to erection and gorging with blood and enlargement of the body of the penis. And as long as that blood is in there, that penis is going to remain elect, erect. Once the blood starts draining out again, now that penis is gonna become uh, more flaccid, right? So the penis has those dorsal arteries of the penis, there are helicine arteries that are coming in, and they're gonna feed blood into these sinusoid-like spaces or these vascular spaces. So if we look, so these are gonna be lined by epithelium, but immediately below that are these smooth muscle boundaries. Are bundles, so these are also important in allowing um, an erection to occur. So these are sometimes called the sub, this is endothelium, these are below the endothelium, your sub-endothelial cushions, which are made up of smooth muscle. All right, so this is just, we didn't really look at the, the lining of the urethra, but the prostatic urethra, Is immediately following the bladder. The bladder is lined by transitional epithelium. Prostatic urethra, you guys probably covered this during your urinary system, but just a little review. Prostatic urethra is lined by transitional epithelium. But as you work your way from membranous to your spongy, it transitions to your pseudo-stratified epithelium until we get on the glands of the penis, the external urethral orifice, where it then transitions to your um, stratified squamous epithelium as it exits the penis. All right. Okay, so as we wrap things up, you guys will be no doubt spending more time on the physiology of this whole process. Um, for our purposes though, it's just kind of a nice way to introduce it. One way to kind of think of it is point and shoot. Parasympathetic is P for point, Sympathetic is S for shoot. Pointing is the erectile part of it. The shooting part is the ejaculation part of it. So you can start kind of linking these two big autonomic parts um, to this whole process. And I'll let you kind of, um, again, you'll no doubt coming into this, you'll you'll spend more time on this, but men can of course take uh, medication to help facilitate this process, things like Viagra, and that sort of thing. And they tend to kind of come into play right around this, this area, right? They inhibit a certain molecule, phosphodiesterase, which can break down, uh, shoot, I'll come back, I'll come back to it. Which, oh. <laughs> okay. Which comes into play right about right here, right? Your Viagra. So what does that mean? The men need to have a functioning autonomic nervous system. They need parasympathetic stimulation for erectile to occur. And if that's the case, then Viagra is gonna work fine. If those parasympathetic nerves are damaged, Viagra's not gonna have any impact, right? And you guys will come back and spend some some time with that in more, more detail. So, Last slide before our turning points. So semen is just a combination of our spermatozoa and all these glandular secretions that are released during that sympathetic um, stimulation. Right? So when we analyze that semen, um, they, they can look at a number of different factors, but if you're trying to have, you having some fertility issues, they'll often ask you to do a, like a semen analysis or a sperm sample. And they'll look at that, right? So a typical volume of um, uh, ejaculate is about, about three mils. And you would expect there to be somewhere around 100 million per sperm. So each ejaculate you can estimate to be maybe somewhere kind of in a healthy individual. 300 million of these spermatozoa. All targeting hopefully, again, how many oocytes are released on a monthly basis usually. One, right, so it's 300 to one. So for male contraceptive issues, again, besides vasectomy, it's really hard to kind of stop 300 versus just one, right? Even though they're working on it, and they should, right? Um, um, So that's something to keep in mind as you think about this whole process. This whole process is taking the three months for producing millions and millions of uh, sperm, right? It's a lot of energy. A lot of resources going into all this cell, cell proliferation, maturation, a lot of energy going into producing these, these uh, spermatozoa. So if you are only producing about 20 million or less per ejaculate, that's considered a low sperm count, may affect your fertility. Okay, last few clickers and then we'll get you guys out of here. So um, as you guys finish this up, just a reminder, as soon as we know how we're gonna, um, or when we're gonna do those replacement lectures for um, physiology, we'll let you guys know. Hopefully it'll just be tomorrow, but um, if, if, if not, we'll let you guys know either way when to expect um, expect those, okay? But hopefully we'll, Get things back on schedule and won't throw anything off off too much more. If if things are, we'll let you know. If we end up moving other stuff, we'll try to let you know as best we can, okay? I think I've got one more question, so just kind of hang on. That's it. Thank you guys. Have a good day